just one DEA agent story. Player one, the National Security Act of 1947 was a charge to coordinate intelligence activities, including collecting, evaluating, and disseminating information that affects national security. The Central Intelligence Agency Act, signed in 1949 by President Truman, allowed for secret funding of these intelligence operations and evasion of standard government practices related to personnel procedures. Player two, the CIA helped to form the Federal Security Directorate, or DFS, with then Mexican President Miguel Aleman in 1947. The goal was to avoid communism and preserve the internal stability of Mexico. Between 1968 and the late 70s, a period of time known as the Mexican Dirty War, the DFS was reported to the United Nations for over 347 crimes. This included car theft rings, working with the Guadalajara cartel, and the protection of marijuana crops, training the Contras, and having involvement in the kidnapping and murder of DEA agent Enrique Kiki Camarena. In 1985, the organization was dismantled by President Miguel de la Madrid and his Secretary of the Interior, Manuel Bartlett Diaz. Player 3. In 1929, Plutarco Elias Calles, Mexico's paramount leader and former president, created the Institutional Revolutionary Party, or PRI. The intention was to provide a political space for surviving leaders and soldiers of the Mexican Revolution. Made up of labor unions, peasant organizations, and regional political parties, Calles was able to undermine, weaken, and circumvent most of the members. Within five years, he was in control of politics and government. The party maintained absolute power over Mexico, only second to the president. PRI was considered the angel puppet master of those 347 plus crimes committed by the DFS. Mexico was struggling internally. The US backed PRI against left-wing guerrilla crows, Christian socialists, and rebellious students. In 1968, hundreds of unarmed citizens and students were peacefully protesting the 1968 Olympics when they were gunned down by the Mexican government, armed with weapons, military radios, and riot control tactics all provided by the CIA. In the early 90s, the PRI started to weaken due to the many candidates beginning to fight for a place in local, state, and national office seats. Player four, quote, by 1972, the quantity of brown heroin from Mexico available in the U.S. had risen 40% higher than the quantity of white heroin from Europe. Traditional international border control was no longer effective against the problem. And in 1974, the Mexican government requested technical assistance from the U.S. On January 26, 1974, Operation Scene, or Special Enforcement Activity in Mexico, was launched in the state of Sinaloa to combat the opium and heroin traffic. One month later, 
a second joint task force, Operation Endron, began operations in the state of Guerrero, concentrating on marijuana and heroin interdiction. Meanwhile, a third effort, Operation Trident, focused on controlling the traffic of illegally manufactured dangerous drugs produced in Mexico. Even though law enforcement in Mexico had some successes, these early efforts did not, in the long term, prevent the development of powerful drug trafficking organizations based in Mexico, end quote. Quote, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics and the Treasury Department, which was responsible for the control of marijuana and narcotics such as heroin with the Bureau of Drug Abuse Control, or BDAC, in the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare, which was responsible for the control of dangerous drugs, including depressants, stimulants, and hallucinogens, such as LSD. The new agency, the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs, or BNDD, was placed under the Department of Justice, which is a government agency primarily concerned with federal law enforcement. BNDD became the primary drug law enforcement agency and concentrated its efforts on both international and interstate activities. By 1970, BNDD had nine foreign offices in Italy, Turkey, Panama, Hong Kong, Vietnam, Thailand, Mexico, France, and Colombia to respond to the dynamics of the drug trade. Domestically, the agency initiated a task force approach involving federal, state, and local officers. The first such task force was set up in New York City, end quote. The Federal Bureau of Narcotics had already opened an office in Mexico City before it opened in Guadalajara in 1969. In 1973, the Drug Enforcement Agency, or DEA, was created, which was an agency meant to combine these multiple predecessor agencies in efforts to combat drugs. It is worth reading verbatim the benefits put forth by the Senate Committee on Government Operations on why this agency was necessary. Quote, one, putting an end to the interagency rivalries that have undermined federal drug law enforcement, especially the rivalry between the BNDD and the U.S. Customs Service. Two, giving the FBI its first significant role in drug enforcement by requiring that the DEA draw on the FBI's expertise in combating organized crime's role in the trafficking of illicit drugs. Three, providing a focal point for coordinating federal drug enforcement efforts with those of state and local authorities, as well as with foreign pol police forces. Four, placing a single administrator in charge of federal drug law enforcement to make the new DEA more accountable than its parts had ever been, thereby safeguarding against corruption and enforcement abuses. Five, consolidating drug enforcement operations in the DEA and establishing the Narcotics Division in Justice to maximize coordination between federal investigation and prosecution efforts and eliminate rivalries within each sphere. And six, establishing the DEA as a super agency to provide the momentum needed to coordinate all federal efforts related to drug enforcement outside the Justice Department especially the gathering of intelligence on international narcotics smuggling, end quote. With that, 
the DEA Intelligence Program, Unified Intelligence Division, and National Narcotics Intelligence System were simultaneously created. Carmen Bayoso and Mike Wallace talk about how the United States and Mexico both created the Mexican drug war back in the 80s that still rages on today in their book named A Narco History. The Federal Reserve had nearly doubled the prime rate from 12% to 21%, causing the rate on Mexico's short-term loans to also double. That made $8 billion a year for interest-only payments. No surprise then that in 1982, Mexico called a sovereign debt, meaning they could not pay. The United States put together more loans to help Mexico pay back its own loans. But the catch was readjustment. The catch was privatization, cutting back on social programs, additional foreign investment, and payments on that interest, of course. 800,000 jobs were lost and 2 million farmers could no longer maintain their crops. So they went into the barrios of the cities looking for work in factories. Labor unions weren't supported as strongly anymore. Basic grocery prices went up as these jobs and wages continued to evaporate. The farmers that stayed behind turned to marijuana and poppies to survive. Through this restructuring, Factory workers were exempt from tariffs and went through minimal inspections, so smugglers began to buy these factories and use them to ship cocaine. With the newly disheartened society, the Federal Reserve Bank created with this decision to raise rates, the cartel suddenly had a super supply of workers from the growers to the protectors. A former federal police officer Miguel Angel Felix Gallardo started working for drug traffickers as a broker of corruption with additional state officials. He created the Guadalajara Cartel along with Rafael Carl Quintero and Ernesto Fonseca Carillo, who both worked in the Aviles crime syndicate until Aviles was killed in a shootout. Miguel brought negotiation skills and inside knowledge while Rafael and Ernesto bought established trafficking routes. Rafael had already been growing marijuana since he was younger. Ernesto had a prize addition with his nephew Amado Carrillo Fuentes, well known as the Lord of the Skies. He was sent to Ojinaga, Chihuahua, Mexico, right next to the Texas border, to oversee the Medellin cartel's cocaine shipments into the U.S. The Medellin cartel was at the peak of its existence and power. It controlled all cocaine movement into the U.S. and wholesale distribution into the communities with the help of Amado's fleet. Using their combined skills, knowledge, organization, and other cartel allies, the Guadalajara cartel grew exponentially. Most of the DFS employees were on the cartel's payroll, and the demand for drugs from U.S. consumers was high. According to a Department of Health and Human Services National Household Survey, the number of people who routinely used cocaine rose to 5.8 million in 1985 from 4.2 million. The increase came from the new addictive and smokable version called crack, and more children are starting to be born with these drugs in their system. 
Enrique Kiki Camarena was born July 26, 1947 in Mexicali, Mexico. When he was small, his family migrated over the border into Calexico, California. Graduating from Calexico High School in 1966, he enlisted in the U.S. Marines, following after one of his siblings, Eduardo, who was killed in Vietnam in 1965. After discharge in 1970, he returned to Calexico to join the police department and got into undercover operations specializing in narcotics. Once the DEA was created, they began a hiring process focused on Spanish-speaking agents. Kiki Camarena joined in 1973, along with his sister Mirna, who began as a secretary. Although the DEA had offices in Mexico, as foreign agents, they were not allowed to operate as undercover agents, but had to build their cases through informants. Kiki worked with an informant named Captain Alfredo Savala. Captain Savala was a pilot for the Mexican Ministry of Agriculture. He and Kiki were able to spot illegal plantations and confirm their findings using aerial photography. In 1981, Rafael Carl Quintero built the largest known marijuana plantation in history in Chihuahua at 2,500 acres called Rancho Buffalo. Chihuahua is nearly 15 hours from Guadalajara, but only two and a half hours from Ojinaga, where all the shipments left Mexico to enter the U.S. Due to this aerial photography, these plots were soon destroyed. Destruction of this crop interfered with the regular cocaine shipments delivered to the Mexican president's office and the advance payments already made. The corruption went to the top and Rafael became very upset, targeting DEA agents as retaliation. On January 30, 1985, Rafael was in Guadalajara having a private dinner with companions in their back room of a restaurant he owned called The Lobster when he spotted two men having dinner, whom he mistakenly thought were two DEA agents. Writer and American journalist John Clay Walker and dentistry student Albert Radelat were having a celebratory dinner. Walker was on a sabbatical year living in Guadalajara with his family while writing a book. Radelat was a dental student from Fort Worth, Texas. Rafael is accused of ordering the abduction, torture, and murder of these men that night. That following June, their bodies were discovered in Zapopan wrapped in carpet. In Rafael's mind, any gringo or white American was DEA. On February 7, 1985, Geneva Mika Camarena, Kiki's wife, was waiting for him to join her for lunch. He was late, but she went ahead and ordered. It wouldn't be the first time he was called back to the office, and she would just see him later. Kiki left the U.S. consulate office right around noon to meet Mika. Just as he gets to his truck, a car with four guys pulls up next to him, saying they need to talk. Kiki is calm and agrees to go, but he wants to alert his superiors first. But they point a gun at him and shove him in the car, and he never gets to make that call. On March 6, 1985, he and Captain Safala's bodies were found on a roadside two hours southeast near Zamora, behind the home of Manuel Bravo Cervantes in a field. Manuel was said to be involved in drug running in the Michoacan Jalisco region of Mexico and was a former state congressman. 
He was killed with his wife and two sons in a confrontation with the police. Investigators confirmed that their bodies had recently been moved and had only been in that spot for about 15 days. For four years after Kiki's death, there was no movement, even though there was a lot of pressure on Mexico to get answers and find those responsible. Foreign legalities made it difficult to navigate, operate, and get the information the U.S. needed. In 1989, DEA Administrator Jack Lawn put Hector Bereas in charge as a supervisor of investigating the murder of Kiki, known as Operation Leyenda. At that point, he had already been stationed in Mexico in Mazatlan, Sinaloa for two years. Like Kiki, Hector served in the military in Vietnam. When he returned home, he became a police officer. His family was personally affected by heroin addiction, and as an agent, he focused on fighting the suppliers as an undercover agent. Working right on the border to Mexico, Hector crossed over many times to help learn about the ways Mexican drug dealers and suppliers worked. They called him often to translate, and it was an easy transition for him to infiltrate and understand the Mexican cartels and communities. With a multi-million dollar investigative budget provided by the U.S., Hector was able to recruit three former state policemen who were all on the Guadalajara cartel's payroll, directly serving the bosses. Hector was so connected by that point, he was able to go straight to the people that were walking the halls of Los Pinos, the Mexican White House. Jorge Godoy, who served as a Jalisco state policeman from 1980 to 1985, was his first contact. In addition to helping explain Kiki's death, he provided information about murders committed under orders of Joaquin El Chapo Guzman. He is currently under U.S. witness protection. His best friend in the police force, Rene Lopez, served alongside him from 1981 to 1985. They both became detectives in the homicide unit. Both served as security guards in the cartel. Their supervisor was Ramon Lira, who served from 1973 to 1985. He was also Ernesto Fonseca Carrillo's bodyguard and was present for Kiki's kidnapping. He had been on the run since 1985 until Hector recruited him as an informant. These informants are included in Amazon Prime's movie called The Last Narc, describing the events leading up to and during Kiki's kidnapping. On February 6, 1985, the night before Kiki's kidnapping, a meeting of cartel members, politicians, and other figures in Mexico tied to cartel profits took place. They had information confirming that Kiki and Alfredo worked together to capture the aerial photos of Rafael's plots that were destroyed the previous November. After Kiki is thrown into the car, he is taken less than 10 minutes away to 881 Lope de Vega in Guadalajara. Ruben Zuna Arce, brother-in-law to former Mexican president Luis Echeverria owned the house. The house was full of those 50 to 60 people who attended the meeting the night before. Kiki was stripped to his underwear. Jorge, Ramon, and Rene were charged with keeping Kiki in place while Rafael and his crew began to attack him. Kiki suffered from cigarette burns, a crushed jaw, anal violation, broken ribs, lost teeth, and his face being lit on fire with AK-47 gunpowder. Miguel's crew arrived a few hours later adding more assaults. By now, Alfredo had been kidnapped from his car near the Guadalajara airport by El Chapo's crew. 
Eventually, another man later identified by informants as Felix Rodriguez began interrogating Kiki and recording it. Going by the name Max Gomez, Felix's questioning was regarding connections between the Mexican government, CIA, and drug traffickers. What did he know about the Contras in Nicaragua? His answer was always the same. He didn't know anything. The loss of the plantation cost the cartel $150 million in annual profits with $2 billion worth of marijuana in flames. That mattered, but it became clear from this questioning that Kiki's photos were a potential assault on the entire network. Renee, one of the informants, recalls that when they first found out about the plantation being burned, Rafael looked worried, explaining that he paid for the plantation's rights by sending some of the profit in advance to Miguel de la Madrid, then president of Mexico. Kiki was not in good shape, so they brought in a physician, Dr. Umberto Marchain. After a quick check, he told them that Kiki needed a hospital or he wouldn't make it. Ernesto wanted to get him to a hospital. After all, he was a DEA agent, and he didn't want it to go any further. He clearly didn't know the answers to these questions, but Rafael didn't let up so easily. Ignoring the doctor's recommendations, he insisted Kiki keep being revived so the beatings could continue. Ernesto and his crew left around 7 or 8 p.m. that evening. Miguel Angel had already left. Kiki was tortured for 36 hours. Then, Rafael ordered he be put to death, and a gunman crushed his skull with a piece of rebar. Even though Mika hadn't heard from Kiki since lunch, she wasn't yet concerned. She and Kiki had just two weeks left in Mexico. They were returning to the States, and she couldn't be more relieved. Normally, she would wake up at night if she didn't feel him in the bed next to her. But on this night, she did not wake up. She slept deeply. When she saw he was still not there the next morning, Mika called Kiki's partner, who asked her if he ever showed up for lunch. Mika's heart sank. They didn't even know he was missing. With her whole body, she knew he had been kidnapped, and she started to pray, begging God that he would be returned alive. Once she reported him missing, his superior, Jamie Coykendall, notified his superiors and tried to obtain support from the Mexican police force to help find him. Any DEA agents in Latin America were notified and asked to contact their informants for information. 25 special agents from DEA headquarters were dispatched to Guadalajara to help find Kiki. The Mexican state police started their investigations. Informants gave enough information for the authorities to narrow it down to the leaders of the Guadalajara cartel. All three became the top suspects. On February 9th, Rafael Caro Quintero was confronted by police as he was preparing to leave on a private jet. After a standoff, the Mexican commander had a private conversation with Rafael and shortly after, he boarded the plane and left. When questioned why he let him go, the commander claimed Rafael was on an official mission. It was not to be impeded. It is said that the Mexican police worked alongside drug traffickers to quickly solve this case, sending an anonymous letter to the police saying that Kiki was being held at another gang's ranch. The police were supposed to raid the ranch, eliminate the gang, and eventually discover the bodies of both Kiki and Alfredo buried there. The DEA would be notified and the case would be closed. The FBI forensic team was denied permission to process clothing, the wrapped sheet, and other materials. 
still, they could identify Kiki through a fingerprint expert and hair samples. Alfredo was buried alive and identified by dental records. Soil sampling confirmed that the bodies were initially buried somewhere else and had later been placed in the location where they were found. On March 8, Kiki's body was returned to the U.S. On March 14, Mexican authorities detained five Jalisco State Police officers and questioned them about Kiki's murder. One detainee died while being interviewed. The statements of the others indicated Rafael Caro Quintero and Ernesto Fonseca Carrillo. DEA was not notified about these interrogations. On March 17th, the local newspapers reported that the Mexican police force had arrested 11 people and arrest warrants were put out for Rafael and others for kidnapping and murder. On April 4th, Rafael was located and arrested in Costa Rica, along with seven of his associates. They were all loaded into a government plane for the three-hour trip back to Mexico City for questioning. After several interrogations, he admitted he was responsible for the abduction, but denied knowing anything about his being murdered. He also claimed to know nothing about the kidnapping and death of Captain Savala. On April 7th, Ernesto Fonseca Carrillo and several of his bodyguards, which included Ramon Lira and Jorge Godoy, were arrested five hours away from Guadalajara and Puerto Vallarta. Ernesto and his right-hand Samuel Ramirez Razo admitted to the abductions but also claimed no knowledge of Kiki's death or Captain Zavala's. The blame turned towards Miguel Angel. Also, in April 1985, the Mexican police informed the DEA that they knew where Kiki and Alfredo had been interrogated. However, they could not enter and process the residence until the MFJP forensic team first did their investigation. In the meantime, the house was cleaned and painted. A few MFJP officers were occupying the residence, contaminating anything that might have been left. All obvious evidence was removed before the DEA could get there. The FBI did what they could and recovered multiple bags of evidence. On May 3, 1985, Operation Leyenda was established, which Hector Boreas was in charge of. An associate of Rafael had given up information about the location of Albert Radelat and John Walker's bodies being buried in La Primavera Park in Guadalajara. In September 1985, their bodies were recovered and soil samples were taken. They matched soil found on Kiki and Alfredo, which confirmed they had been buried there first, but later moved to where they had been found in Zamora. Ramon Lira talked about how Ernesto had the recordings of Kiki's torture, and he would listen to them over and over and constantly drink alcohol. Fonseca could hear the exasperated and exhausted responses of Kiki denying knowing anything they wanted to know. He was beside himself and stressed out, so upset with Rafael for abducting a DEA agent and putting them all in a hot, intense situation. He knew this was the end of everything. Fonseca called the DFS repeatedly for help, but no one answered or responded. Those recordings were seized by Mexican authorities when he and his crew were found in Puerto Vallarta. Mexico turned these tapes over to the U.S. not long after these arrests. Hector needed to know more about the interrogator on the tapes. Felix Rodriguez was part of the hunt on Che Guevara, participated in the Bay of Pigs, and was even a close friend of George H.W. Bush. He was recruited to head the illegal Contra resupply operation. Felix delivered weapons to Fonseca regularly. He was seen at Quintero's home on multiple occasions, along with other politicians and cartel leaders. 
He was also seen at Rancho Veracruz, a jungle airbase for the Guadalajara cartel, also owned by Rafael. Contras were trained there and weapons were shipped out to Nicaragua. Hector was contacted by Guillermo Calderoni, a Mexican federal judicial police commander who advised him to stop investigating Kiki's murder because the U.S. government killed him. Calderoni said that he had been using forms called DEA-6s to report his findings. These forms cannot be destroyed and reports of results found. When Calderoni brought info about Rodriguez interrogating Kiki, Hector would report this information and be told that it would be investigated. But he submitted reports that disappeared and they were never acted on. One day, Hector was summoned to the office of DEA Administrator Jack Lon. Lon asked Hector if he could get Dr. Marchain for questioning. Hector employed his connections and got him on a plane to the U.S. He joked about how he had to beg the air traffic control officers to let the plane land. When the plane came down, Marchain was thrown out of the plane rolling on the tarmac. It never even hit the ground. In 1992, Dr. Marchain was tried for Kiki's murder, but the charges were dismissed due to violating the extradition agreement between the U.S. and Mexico. Because DEA agents kidnapped him, it was illegal. Dr. Marchain was sent back to Mexico. Hector Bereas was transferred to Washington, D.C., removed from the investigation of Kiki Camarena, and told never to contact his informants again. He can't prove anything about the CIA being involved with the cartel, so just keep quiet. But if he decides to speak out, it is best to remember his warrant in Mexico for Dr. Marchain's kidnapping. Hector Boreas was contacted by a Mexican official whose phone call had been recorded, and a piece of it was played for the movie The Last Narc. This information claims that someone in Kiki's own camp gave him up and handed him over to the cartel. They told the cartel what time he would leave the building and what he was wearing. The DEA agent that had supposedly given Kiki away was kept confidential, never revealed. Hector retired early in 1996 feeling betrayed by his government. Mika agrees that the U.S. government let her husband down. Saddened by Kiki's death, his friends, family, and people in the hometown of Calexico, California, began wearing red ribbons in his honor. This raised the consciousness of the destruction caused by drugs. Since 1985, the last week of every October from the 23rd through the 31st is in Kiki's honor. In 2004, Mika founded the Enrique S. Camarena Educational Foundation to preserve and promote the sacrifices made by Special Agent Kiki Camarena and all law enforcement officers that had given their lives in fighting drug abuse. The foundation supports drug-free education activities for our nation's youth. Born in 1930, Ernesto Fonseca Carrillo is now 93 years old. In July 2016, he was transferred out of prison to spend the remainder of his 40-year sentence at home under house arrest. Born in 1946, Miguel Angel Felix Gallardo is now 77 years old. Sentenced to 40 years for Kiki's death, an additional 37 years were added on after a 2017 retrial. In 2022, his request to be transferred home to serve the rest of his sentence on house arrest was granted. Born in 1952, Rafael Caro Quintero is now 71 years old. Sentenced to 40 years for Kiki's death, he was released after 28 years in August of 2013. Quote, 
The Jalisco State Court ruled that Caro Quintero was tried improperly in a federal courtroom for crimes that should have been treated at a state level. When Caro Quintero was given his 40-year sentence in the 1980s, he was convicted of murder, a state crime, and not for drug trafficking, a federal one. In 2022, he was recaptured.